Hi, and welcome to the Nibble Scotland podcast. This week, I'm really delighted that James Withers, the head of Scotland Food and Drink, joins us to give us his take on the COVID-19 tornado, which has really affected our food and service industry. We chat about some of the challenges he has faced over the last six weeks, how their members are adapting, how buyer behaviours are changing, and even hear some of the uplifting stories emerging from the marketplace. As we begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel, Scotland Food and Drink are watching carefully countries around the world to gain from some of the lessons they've learned as they come out of lockdown. Wherever you're listening to the podcast, it'd be great if you could drop a review and ensure that you subscribe so don't miss a future episode. Please follow us on social media at Nibble Scotland for our first look at future guests and a behind-the-scenes look of everything mentioned in each episode. So let's chat from me. And in light of our new social distancing world, I welcome James to join me for coffee over Zoom. If I could just thank you, James, for joining us today in Nibble Scotland podcast. Obviously, we're going to, we've gone through quite a tremendous sort of time over the last wee while. And I, I really sort of think that we've had to change our plans, but we're not really changing our purpose and what we do. And these food producers are really working around the clock to really deliver an amazing produce to everybody around the country. But really, to give all our audience um, a bit of background, can you give us a bit of update of what Scots and Food and Drink do and what you offer your members? Yeah, sure. So we're a pretty young organisation, all in all, compared to many of the industry bodies that are out there. So we were formed in 2007, and the grand plan was really to try and bring all the different parts of Food and Drink farming, fishing together into one room to try and grow the whole sector. So there was a real sense that food and drink in Scotland was something of a sleeping giant. We all know about the whiskey story, but actually we had, the for a small nation, this incredible diversity of product and businesses. How could we bring all of that together to build Scotland's national identity around food and drink and ultimately drive its growth? So we're a membership organisation. As you mentioned there, we've got about 450 companies that are members of ours they are small they are large they are new starts they are well established um, and we really work to try and drive opportunities for them to sell their products uh, to more customers whether that's across Scotland the whole of the UK or, or internationally. Uh-huh. So you you came from you've come from food you came from National Farmers Union before? Yes yeah so I am um, well, it would be about 20 years ago now since I finished studying, uh, looking for what was going to keep me busy career-wise. And it just so happened that I finished doing a politics degree and six weeks later, the Scottish Parliament opened. So NFU Scotland, National Farmers Union, was one of many, many organisations that decided they might need someone to run between their office and the Parliament building. And I did that in agriculture for a few years. I ended up being there 11 years, so sort I of headed up the communications for a while. Uh, was chief exec for, for four years. And then NFU Scotland were actually one of the sort of founding fathers of Scotland Food and Drink. Uh, and Scotland Drink approached me to really move beyond the farm gate, further into the rest of the supply chain, near the market, uh, and head up Scotland Food and Drink. So I, I, I kind of come from an agricultural background career-wise, but certainly not personally. I am a townie. Uh, I'd never been onto a farm until I started working for, for NFUS. But um, yeah, I suppose I'm converted now. So you've had you you had you've got everything in place before we were getting ready for Brexit, and then we got thrown in a little a worldwide pandemic just yeah, to yeah. juice up twenty twenty a little bit more for us. So tell us about like your last four or five weeks. What have you what have been your challenges? 
I suppose the last four or five weeks already feels like it's been four or five years. Um, we came into the year, you know, January 2020. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic chap anyway, coming into a new year, seeing a, you know, a country that's just got an incredible food and drink story. And it's been an amazing success story over the last 10 years. Scotland's best performing sector of the economy, our fastest growing export sector, you know, a whole new generation of businesses coming up. And it felt like, you know, this is another year we're going to kick on. You know, I was losing some sleep over Brexit. You know, I was worried how that was going to pan out. And, you know, I just, I was really struggling to see any of the silver linings or, or bright spots to the Brexit story, uh, albeit, you know, many other people can, but I was really struggling to see it. And I thought that was going to be the biggest of our challenges. Well, God, how wrong was I? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we came into start of March and then bang, it feels like the rug's been pulled from under everything we were doing. Um, and it's been a period uh, of working that I haven't experienced before. Um, I probably got a bit of a taste of it in 2001 during the foot and mouth outbreak. Okay. You know, out of nowhere came this sort of um, disaster, really, which, you know, ripped the heart out of really good businesses. Um, and for three months, it was like a wartime scenario in agriculture. And it's felt very much like that the last four or five weeks. And even in that short time, it's gone through distinct phrases from the chaos and the fear and the mania of the first couple of weeks into probably what is settling into something of a new normal, which is trying to adapt to a world that has just changed overnight for, for all of us personally, as well as professionally. Yeah, I mean, a number of our markets have all sort of contracted. I mean, the is the export market sort of been restricted with the coronavirus as well? Yeah, so the two real parts of the market that really collapsed overnight were the export market and then at home, the food service market. So Scotland sells um, around about £1.6 billion worth of food um, to countries all around the world, right? 100 different countries every year. Um, that has grown by more than 130% in the last decade. So it was a real success story. Um, and that market really fell away overnight, um, in part because so much of it went into the food service sector. We were selling seafood into sushi restaurants into Japan. We're selling craft gin into the top bars in New York. And the closure of those markets and the closure of those outlets has, has really shut down that trade. But even if there were willing customers out there, um, a lot of our high-value perishable products go in the belly of passenger aircraft. So if anyone's ever been on the Glasgow flight that goes uh, into Dubai with Emirates, they're sitting on top of, of as well as their own luggage, <laughs> a lot of seafood and salmon. Uh, but the grounding of the air fleet has, you know, again, completely cut off that archery into the international markets. So you add that on top of what we've seen the real disaster playing out in our tourism and hospitality sector at home with bars and restaurants and hotels closing down has meant that we've seen a lot of businesses that we know, you know, really good, well-run businesses that have built up their, um, their business and their profile over the last few years and have had, you know, 80 to 100% of that business lost in the last wee while. And yeah, there's been a spike in retail and as we've all seen that early panic buying, um, but that's now settled back down to normal. In fact, retail sales have been dropping. Uh -huh. So what we're really seeing is the pain of this closure of hospitality and export markets now really hitting home. And it's pretty frightening for a lot of people. And where's all that extra produce? Where's it been stored? Is it just 
going to waste or well it's a real mix i mean if you've got a product obviously that's got a shelf life if you're making whiskey to be honest that can be stored for a while even though we've got you know slick supply chains around the world that product's not going to go off um you know if you're making jam it might have a bottle of water you might have a 12 month shelf life again you know whilst that supply chain is disrupted you're not going to be losing product but actually a lot of the perishable product just you know, can't survive 24 hours of disruption. And, you know, we're seeing the UK's biggest food export is Scottish salmon. Uh, and that, you know, that's fish that need harvested from pens and processed. We've got um, milk being produced on farm and cows don't stop milking, even if there's a global pandemic. So what do you do with all that product that, you know, we're already would have been going into peak production just now. And all our coffee shops have closed down. Uh, a lot of that food service sector closed down. So there's going to be huge losses, Phil, not just in processing, but right back down to, to individual farmers. Yeah. And I, I see, like, this when you said the, the supermarket supply chain, that's pretty much intact and that's going quite well. But consumers have changed their buying behaviour quite a lot now, and they're going direct to the producers, which causes an issue, another issue of the middlemen, the wholesalers and the merchants, that their trade has been cut. It has, yeah. And it's all these kind of ripple effects and working out quite how everything will settle remains really difficult to call at the moment. Now, a lot of the wholesale sector have done an unbelievable job in the last few weeks in repurposing themselves, whether that's, you know, you're seeing the likes of Breaks and Bid Food are now working collectively, you know, who used to be pretty strong competitors, I would yeah. have to say, now working as one to get food to the vulnerable. You've got some of the wholesalers who have lost capacity going into hospitality, switching to help into retail. Um, there are some positives in it all, though, as well. You know, you're seeing uh, consumers uh, do more business directly with producers. You've seen people suddenly in a crisis you know, crisis can be the mother of innovation and you see people switch suddenly into digital solutions. And that's something we're looking at at Scotland Food and Drink about how we might provide a kind of national directory in and around that. Um, and I think what will be really interesting is when we come out of the back of this, when we go from this kind of, I suppose, wartime scenario back into peacetime is just how much our world might change, just how much of our shopping behaviours might change, how much how we do business might change. And I think my instinct says that some of this direct connection with the people producing food on our doorstep that is being built during this crisis um, might last. And I think that could be one of the positives that comes out of all of this. I think it's quite interesting because even like thinking we've, we've almost moved the effects of what Brexit was going to be six months forward. And like everybody's just had to sit up and embrace that change and make those connections directly with the consumers. And you're seeing a lot more like the farmers markets, you see in the farm shops, they're all like starting to go direct to the consumers and start building up that relationship. I wonder if it's going to move us back into that community high street model back again. I mean, you see some chefs are coming on and supporting the local butchers and the local farm shops with their produce and promoting that. And people are sort of going, okay, we'll go and try that. Maybe it's the quality of work. Maybe that's all the ethos you've been trying to build up is now coming back faster. Yeah, I think so. And, and in some ways, you know, all this preparation that was done for a no-deal Brexit um, has helped us in a way. We probably wouldn't have been as quick and unable to adapt to this sudden shutting down of, of key markets. I mean, for me, you know, I've spent my, whatever it is, eight years at Scotland Food and Drink almost 
talking about the importance of a breadth of markets, importance of having local as well as global, and any successful life, successful sector I have seen, whether it's food and drink or anywhere else, has got a nice match of good local customers, good national customers, and good international customers. And but I think it is this local piece that is going to be a real legacy of the COVID-19 chaos. And I think this better connection between local producers and, and local customers. And I think that is likely to, that's definitely likely to last. And I think that will be, that will be a good thing. And I think it's going to shine a spotlight on things like food security. You know, I, I'm a generation that has grown up just presuming it's natural that you will just walk into a supermarket and be able to find any product you want from anywhere in the world at an incredibly low price. Well, um, the world's become an awfully more volatile place in the last uh, six weeks. So I think some of those presumptions about the importance of being able to produce food in this country for our own public, uh, for our own, you know, our own population, um, I think those kind of um, parts of this story are going to resonate way longer than the outbreak will. Absolutely. I thought it was also quite interesting how... I don't know, I've come from a technical background. I always sort of think that people are already online, but actually the stats were showing only actually 12% of businesses were online prior to this. And now you're actually seeing everybody clambering on to do very basic shops, online shops to get to that market. But there's some, there's starting to be some nice stories coming through. Like I think yesterday I saw, was it Glasgow Pantry? They're starting to connect all the Glasgow businesses together, yeah. the chefs and the restaurants and everybody, and then the farmers markets and the wholesalers all getting the online purpose going out. This whole next generation are going to be the online community as well. They're coming through, even from seeing the kids doing the education online. They're just going to, this is going to be their life. Yeah, I think so. And I think the education bit's a really interesting one. I saw a brilliant video that Quality Meet Scotland were doing. They're doing uh, farm kids videos. So just speaking to kids about what isolation feels like if you're running a beef farm or a sheep farm. And it just, a bit of that education that's happening whilst we have this really odd period where our school population are at home. You know, yeah. the I think will, will definitely be really interesting. The, the connections and, and how best we do that on a, so the online connection, how best we do that nationally is an interesting discussion because, you know, you're right what Glasgow are doing. I've seen it in Edinburgh, Highlands is a group getting together. You've already had places like Orkney and Arran, the islands, I think, probably more naturally linked towards working as a community. I don't know if that's, if you're surrounded by water, but it forces you to do that. Yeah, you have to work closer, quicker, Definitely. yeah. So I think those kind of local communities doing that will be really good. I think the question is, how can we provide tools where instead of each of our individual food and drink producers, of which we have hundreds and hundreds, all trying to raise their own online presence, their own brand, their own awareness, all try and drive, drive traffic to them, rather than, you know, 800, 900 businesses doing that individually, how can we help that nationally? How can you can combine nationally? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That'd I be lovely. Know, you know, how you might develop a kind of central directory, plug in the postcode, and then you'll find who in your area you can source from, which, yeah. again, has been done really well regionally. You don't want to duplicate that, but it might be just a way to stitch it all together. There has to be something that'd be quite nice to bring under the Scotland brand. I'm worried as well about a lot of these. I mean, for years we've been championing getting this, get, getting people back into the food industry and being entrepreneurial, and you've got a lot of sole traders who are falling through the gap in this and I really my heart goes out to them because they'll, they'll be missing all the grants and loans and yeah. everything is what can we do to help support them or so I think there's two things really I think there is how do you replace the market that has been lost 
Uh, and you can't do all of that. The reality is that, you know, we've seen a massive shutdown of the out-of-home market, which, and the value of the food and drink bought in that was not far off the value of retail markets, about 90 billion across the UK. So for that to close down overnight, it's difficult to get all of that back. So I think it's about that route to market bit. But I also think the support story and the grant story is not over. Um, and, you know, the Chancellor said they'll do whatever it takes. The Scottish Government said they'll keep it under review. Just uh, on Monday uh, this week, we've had a new seafood hardship fund open up. Um, and that will have to open up to wider sectors. And, and like you, the real heartbreaking stories, as there always is with these kind of emergency support functions, the people that fall through the gaps, who are not, you know, who are the unintended uh, missed targets in all of this. And it is people who are, you know, not necessarily self-employed. They are sole traders. And maybe their only income was coming from a director's fee or a dividend that the business paid. And none of the support options is going to help them. And already there's even a differential if you've got, you know, a few shops, you're going to get more money in England than you are in Scotland. Now, that's devolution. We take different decisions in Scotland, and I get that. And part of the benefit of that is we've been able to do other things like specific support for our seafood sector. But I don't think the support story is over by half, and we're going to have to do more to help businesses because ultimately, if we try and cast our mind forward to whenever on earth we get out of all of this, we're going to need these very businesses that are in the gaps at the moment there to drive the recovery. Yeah. Uh, and these aren't businesses that are badly run or have done something wrong or should have seen this coming. They're good businesses run by good people producing good products and we need them there for the recovery. Well, there's also that story where you're getting all the service industries, okay, so people are getting furloughed and they, but a lot of these service industries will have their debts from their suppliers and they'll have um, sort of rolling on like the rents and rates and all the rest of it. But I even understand like the insurance aren't paying out on some of their um, for, on some of their cases because it's a known disease. So even if they're covered on uh, in insurance purposes, so we're going to lose a lot of the service industry and just the just the restaurants and the caterers around the place is going to be quite a different. Yeah, I think so. And and you know the insurance sector has proved to be basically a complete dead end on COVID nineteen. I mean, we've spoken to. Dozens and dozens of businesses, most of them had some form of business interruption insurance. I have found one business in Scotland in the food and drink sector that is covered for COVID-19. And that was a really, really bespoke individual policy that was relevant for that business. The rest of them, either they had a pandemic exclusion course, and I'm talking about someone who's running an organization who itself had events insurance, but had a pandemic exclusion course clause, so it wasn't covered, or where there was cover for diseases, COVID-19 isn't mentioned because it's not on the list of diseases, which, you know, is hardly surprising because it's a brand new <laughs> disease, yeah. hence the problem we are in. Um, so the insurance, and, you know, millions of pounds have been paid into the insurance sector for business interruption, and the first time that many people need it, they're not going to get it. And, and to be honest, I have some sympathy with the insurance sector, and that's very rarely I would ever say those words, but if they were going to pay out on the interruption insurance for COVID-19, it would put most of the insurance companies under, unless government underwrote them. Mm, I, um, I, so insurance I, is a dead end. I do think I do think the government needs to come down heavy on that and sort of and give and give some rulings that sort of make them pay out on some of those issues. I think. I think. Well, I think yeah, I think they should be looking at underwriting it. I mean, we're talking yeah. about unprecedented levels of support here that are going in hundreds of billions of pounds. We put in something in the region of half a trillion pounds to underwrite the banks 
10 years ago. I think underwriting the insurance sector to pay out on these policies is not a ridiculous idea at all, because yeah. ultimately that's what the insurance sector is there for. It's, it's coming around to what would be the most uplifting and the most frightening stories you've heard out of this? Um, so I suppose the first few weeks and still is dominated by the frightening stories. Um, and it's businesses, as I say, that are, you know, brilliant businesses, brilliant products, got a great brand, world-class standards of production, a brilliant provenance story. In other words, they've ticked every single box that has been asked of them. Uh, and suddenly they found the market has just shut down, the customers have gone. And even businesses that have been running for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, after this, they're going to be almost like new start businesses again. The balance sheet will have been wrecked. The reserves they put together will be wrecked. And they'll almost they'll be going back into the business world in a way more fragile state than they were before. And that's, you know, not even talking about the businesses that sadly are not going to come through this. Um, but I suppose, you know, in every crisis, you get the, the shafts of light that come through. And I think it is those businesses that have, have seen the support from consumers in their community. It's the businesses that have been able to innovate. It's the distilleries that are now producing hand sanitizer. It's the companies that are donating products that are going into food packs for the vulnerable. It's the businesses that have been doing free deliveries to the local hospitals for NHS workers. I mean, the, the very best in humanity, I think, comes out in these kind of crises, and we've definitely seen it in the food and drink industry. So uh, my, my, you know, I remain, despite the events of the last uh, five or six weeks, um, I suppose I'm still the same optimist that I was when I came into the start of 2020, that people want good quality food, they want a story behind it, they want to be able to connect with the people that produce it and that's behind it. And all those things are going to stay. And in many cases, they might become, you know, even more important in the post-coronavirus world than they were beforehand. So all the ingredients we have for success are still there. They're still valid. And all the trends will be there to, I think, drive the real recovery in the Scottish food and drink industry. And that will ultimately drive the recovery in Scotland's economy as well. We just got to try and bridge this kind of wartime period over the next few weeks to make sure those businesses are still there to be able to deliver and all that. Yeah, I also love the stories that the farmers are getting the pickers now because that for years, everybody's been worried about the Brexit scenario and nobody coming over and they're actually getting all their, all the crops pricked again. So that's been a good news story for me. Yeah, this sort of uh, uh, pick for Britain uh, mentality, yeah. the pick yeah. for Scotland mentality that's happening. So, yeah, that, that's really interesting. It would be really interesting to see whether um, that lasts the course beyond this. Yeah. You know, this is like going back to the future where students in the summer would go and uh, pick tatties, pick veg, pick uh, soft fruit. If that lasts, that'll be really interesting. And it pays pretty well, I have to say. If I was a student, I'd be thinking hard about it. Well, now all the families are not allowed to go on holiday. Maybe they're back to the traditional, the holidays over in Fife to uh, pick the harvest. The weather might even be nice to get some vitamin D after being inside self-isolating for so long. Is there any lessons that are coming out of the other countries yet of how they're emerging from this scenario? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And we're keeping we're keeping an eye on, on these countries because most of them are ahead of us in yeah. terms of where they are in, in, the, in the virus outbreak. So we've been looking at Italy, probably about four weeks ahead of us. China, about eight to 12 weeks ahead of us. And we've got staff overseas in all these markets. So we, we fund, we've got a team of 16 global staff that we fund jointly with 
Scottish Government, Scottish Development International, and a number of other industry bodies. And these guys are worth their weight. I mean, they're always worth their weight in gold, but particularly at the moment, they are on the ground there and seeing what's happening, both in terms of how their countries respond to the crisis, but crucially, what's the change in behaviour for consumers? So what's happening in Italy just now is what we're seeing here. So we're actually seeing, a, they're, they're seeing, as are we, a decline in sales in the big supermarkets now and a switch to convenience. People using their local stores, um, in part because they don't want to travel. They don't want to be in a big airport hangar-sized building with lots of other people. So popping to the local shop is becoming um, more common. Um, and I think uh, look, keeping an eye on where these countries are, because they are a bit ahead of us, um, will be a useful barometer for what our future world will look like within Scotland too. The yeah. downside to it is that, you know, that, that export and international trade uh, to Scottish food and drink is absolutely is critically important. It's been so important to the growth over the last few years. It will remain an important part of the future. The reality is we might be one of the last few countries getting back into that international food and drink market compared to some of our competitors. So we're going to have to catch up and, and catch up fast when eventually we can get back into these markets overseas. Should we just write off 2020 and wake up 2021? <laughs> June, if you had a magic wand, that would be ideal. If you've got a way of making that happen, I think that would be... A, I saw a video on uh, Twitter, one of the many videos kicking about of someone pull it, unwrapping their 2020 diary and putting it in the bin. And it feels a bit like that. But sticking with uh, my desperate attempts to remain optimistic, that despite the kind of car crash that a lot of businesses going through, and it's hellish, and it's hellish on a on a personal basis, and I'm really, really worried about mental health in the sector as well in the short term. But I do think that, you know, you can, as an industry, you can come out stronger from a crisis. Now, for many businesses, it will not be the case. But if we think hard about the kind of industry we want to be, the kind of products we want to sell, how we want to sell them, and how we want to connect with the people that, that live in and around us, there is an opportunity we can come out stronger from this. But um, it's, it really is looking pretty bleak at the moment. And I would, at the moment, wish 2020 had never happened. I know. I remember as, I remember as a child, I was wondering, where would you be in 2020? Always sounded like Blake 7, far away land. But it's, we're now yeah. here with a bang. So. I know, it was jetpacks and things, all exciting yeah. things. It wasn't really pandemics. I'm pretty sure I didn't read that anywhere. No, I know. No, but thank you so much for all your time, James. I really appreciate Pleasure, June. Thank you very much. All right, stay healthy. Take care, be good. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to James for joining us today. Please check out the web links to Scotland's Food and Drinks COVID-19 Help Hub on the nibblescotland.com website. Please stay safe and stay at home during our lockdown. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please don't forget to drop a review and subscribe to Don't Miss a Future episode. Look forward to seeing you soon. Bye for now.